This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Well, I bring you greetings from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in McKinney. My name is Jordan Stone, and I am the senior pastor at Redeemer. I've been there for almost five years. I have known your pastor, Matt Boswell, for almost 14 years at this point. We met in 2008. We served as elders together for a number of years at Providence Church in Frisco. Then we took a number of Ph.D. seminars together at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I've had him down to a class that I teach at Reformed Theological Seminary here in Dallas and consider him to be one of the faithful gospel ministers in our county and in our area. And so our family has been for the last few weeks on what's increasingly becoming this annual three-week vacation that we take in the summer. And so I had texted Boz months ago saying, hey, I'm going to crash the trails on August 7th. And if a Presbyterian preacher can in any way be a blessing to your people, well, I'm here and free of charge. And so he gratefully said, why don't you come and preach and I'll do the music just like old times. And so I do bring the greetings of Redeemer Presbyterian Church for the last four years. In our Lord's Day morning pastoral prayer, we have, with regularity, prayed for your church that God's blessing would be upon your church's ministry, God's blessing would be upon your elders and the Lord's work in the gospel in your midst. And it's been a joy over the last four years or so from afar with eagerness and interest to look in what God is doing in your church's life. And I commend your church's elders and your pastor that every summer you take a break from what surely is your normal rhythm of sermon series to Work through the book of Psalms, as you've been doing in recent years. Some of you might know the history of the church well enough to know that outside of the Gospels of Jesus Christ, there is a singular book in Scripture that has shaped Christian spirituality more than any other book, and it's, it's the book of Psalms. Uh, we know our Savior, he memorized psalms, he prayed psalms, he sang psalms with his disciples. And so early on in the Christian church, in those early centuries of the formation of God's people, they likewise would memorize the psalms, read the psalms, pray the psalms, sing the psalms. A man named Athanasius, who was a courageous fighter of truth, he demanded that his people pray the psalms in private. Uh, the greatest theologian, surely, in all of church history, Outside of Jesus Christ and the apostles, a man named Augustine, he said that the Psalms are like a mirror for the soul. And this morning I have the privilege of continuing your summer series through the Psalms by looking at Psalm chapter 39 and putting that before us as a mirror in God's Word. So if you would, stand with me as we read this morning's sermon text together. And I will read Psalm 39 and then we'll begin this morning So listen now as God speaks to you through his perfect word. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I will not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. So long as the wicked are in my presence, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail in my distress. It grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. 
Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know the end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days as a few handbreadths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. And surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Say law. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. One of the greatest preachers in Scotland during the 1920s was a man named Arthur John Gossip. And like many of the shining pulpits of old, he's almost entirely forgotten to Christians today. Actually, so forgotten is Arthur John Gossip that you couldn't even find a Wikipedia entry for him. And he was a man that was the pastor of the Beech Grove Church in Aberdeen. He was a man that was familiar with distress. He was a man that was familiar with difficulty. He was a man familiar with suffering. He spent most of his time during the First World War serving as a chaplain, holding no small number of troops in his hands as they passed in their final breaths from this world into the next. And then it was one Saturday in 1927 that his wife suddenly and tragically died. So the next morning, he rose to the pulpit at his church in Aberdeen in a throng of people were gathered there together at the congregation. They were wondering, what's he going to say? His beloved wife has just died some hours before. I mean, does Pastor Gossip have anything to say? And he began to preach what one preaching scholar has called one of the three best sermons ever spoken in the English language. It's a sermon whose title comes from the sermon's first sentence, which is, when life tumbles in, what then, when life tumbles in, what then? And I trust that you know every Christian will eventually have to ask that question. When life tumbles in, what then? Has not our Lord Jesus Christ told us that all of his disciples will face trouble in the world? The Apostle Paul has said anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, that person will be persecuted. Life will be hard for God's people. Students, if God grants you many decades, if the Lord tarries and you live for decades more, I promise you, you will ask one day a question. What then, now that my life has in some way tumbled in? And we find yet again in our psalm this morning, David's life has tumbled in. And we want to ask, what then for this man after God's own heart? If you were here last week, you walked through Psalm 38. It's what one scholar has called the suffering prayer of a man struck by sickness because of his sin. And you walk through it as the anatomy of a confession. 
And if you were here last week and had eyes to see as I just read the passage a moment ago, you would notice, I'm sure, some striking similarities between Psalm 38 and Psalm 39. Not only is it similar, they're quite complementary in their perspective. And the theme that I have for us to consider this morning is lessons from the meditations of a soul in suffering. I want to give you a series of lessons from these meditations of King David as his soul is in suffering. So if you glance down at the text before you, it actually comes in two distinct parts. Part one is verse 1 through 8. And then the second part is verse 9 through 13. And each part has the same structure. There's this expression of silence. Then there's a prayer, a petition to the Lord for something. And then there's a cry for deliverance. So the silence, prayer, and a cry for deliverance. But what I want to do is help unfold four simple lessons from David's meditations as his soul is in suffering. Meditation number one that we want to learn this day is suffer quietly. Look at verse one as it begins again. David says, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I have a mentor in the ministry that likes to speak about what he calls the evangelical sin. And if you asked him what that evangelical sin is, he would immediately refer to sins of the mouth, sins of the tongue. What many Christians today, certainly in our Western context, almost seem as though they're just respectable sins. You know, kids, you might even think that sins of the tongue are tiny sins. But the Bible tells us sins of the tongue aren't tiny sins, they're terrible sins, like a a spark that sets a forest ablaze, such as the power of the tongue. You know, children, you may have never thought about this before, but the tongue is so dangerous. Have you ever thought about the fact that God put two gates in front of it to often keep it shut? Gates being the teeth and the lips. The tongue can be quite dangerous. David himself recognizes the danger of the tongue. He wants to keep it shut as with a muzzle. You'll see he says at the end of verse 1, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. So what you need to know from the outset here for David, his concern is less about particular sins of the tongue, and his concern is more about the specific audience to whom he is speaking at this point. What she talks about as the wicked, we might refer to as uh, the unbelieving world. Do you know that there are times when, when wisdom means not speaking openly about your struggles? Do you know that godliness sometimes means you keep quiet in your suffering? Well, certainly that's true here for David because he recognizes for a reason we're not sure that to speak about his suffering, certainly the words that are soon going to pour forth in a minute, to speak about God and his suffering in that way in front of those people, it wouldn't be good. Maybe they would misrepresent. Maybe they would uh, misapply what he's trying to say, or maybe in David's discernment and in discipline, he would think that, that his words and expressions would in some way stoke the unbelief of the unbelieving world. Uh, students, I- I'm sure that you know you-, you live in a world today, the year of our Lord, 2022, that's an unfiltered world. It seems, doesn't it, for so many people, near a thought or opinion goes unposted, unpublished, or unrecorded. But here's David saying, godliness means sometimes suffering quietly. But he doesn't say that suffering quietly means suffering easily. You see what he says in verse 2. 
He says, I was mute and silent, and I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. So his distress is deepening, and that leads us to a second lesson we want to learn in verse 3 and following. Uh, we're, we're meant to suffer knowingly. Suffer knowingly. Because you see what he says, and my heart became hot within me, and as I mused, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. Uh, kids, I'm, I'm sure you can appreciate the image that David is using here. The hearth of his heart, it's, it's burning beyond its boundaries. He can't contain it anymore. He, he must begin to speak. That he is not speaking to the unbelieving world doesn't mean he's not talking about his struggles and suffering. But it does mean he's talking to someone else. Namely, if you glance down, he's talking to the Lord about those struggles and sufferings. Uh, I wonder how many of you know that it's quite easy when, when suffering strikes to talk to everyone about your suffering other than God. To talk to so many other people about your struggle and forget to bow your knees before the Lord. And David bows his knees before the Lord and you'll see what he says in verse 4. Oh Lord, make me know. He wants to suffer knowingly. Know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Verse 5, behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. My lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And these words are so famous in the Church of England's tradition because they were used in the Book of Common Prayer's burial service. Psalm chapter 39, verse 4 and 5 I have, for many years now, been somewhat of a, a frequenter of cemeteries. You know, when the weather's nice, which is only a small slice of the year here in Texas, and ministry demands allow and family demands allow, I, I enjoy just leaving the office relatively early in the day and spending a few hours at a, a local cemetery. I take my Bible, I take a good Christian book, I just sit there among the tombstones. I read, pray, walk around. It's good, isn't it? To be reminded that should the Lord tarry, uh, my body will likewise lay underneath a tombstone. And I love just walking through the cemetery and trying to discern the stories that might be behind the inscriptions on the tombstone. And if you walk through particularly older cemeteries in the European world, uh, what you'll find is a Latin phrase inscribed on many of them, mementum mori, which just means remember you must die. Actually, centuries ago, it would have been common if you were in a relatively wealthy English home or even European home, if you went into the man of the house's desk room. What you would find is a table that would serve as a large desk, but uh, quite often what you would find also in the corner of a part of that desk, you would find a skull. And there'd be some type of a phrase, remember, you must die. I wonder when was the last time you remembered your life is but a handbreadth. A handbreadth in the ancient Israelite world is one of the smallest measurements. I mean, kids, you can hold up your hand and think about the length. It's really just the width of the hand. It's a few inches. And what David is saying here, in light of eternity, in the scope of all of God's doings, what is my life but just a few inches? Just, just a tiny little mark on the timeline of what God is doing in the world. Why is that helpful when you suffer? So what then is your suffering? 
but an even smaller mark on the timeline of what God is doing in the world. You see that David confirms it in verse 6. He says, Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. It's a vapor in the wind. It's the shadow that's pushed away by the sun. It all just vanishes in a moment, is his point. Now, the New Testament tells us, doesn't it, that the way this ought to work itself out in our life is what the Apostle Paul speaks about to the Corinthians. He says, godliness means suffering quietly, suffering knowingly, meaning that this light and momentary affliction is achieving before us an eternal glory that far outweighs it all. Can, can you press on in your difficulty knowing that it is just altogether tiny and temporary? That's why David wants to know the end of his days. He's suffering quietly. He's suffering knowingly. And you'll see in verse 7, he suffers hopefully. He asks the question, now, O Lord, for what do I wait? We have six children. And as I said earlier, we have kind of gotten in this pattern where I take almost all of my vacation weeks every year in the summer. And we depart west to this trek through the mountains. We visit family in Colorado. We were visiting national parks in Wyoming. We made our way up to the Beartooth Mountains in Montana. We piled the six kids into our uh, black passenger van that we lovingly refer to as the Black Beast, and we just begin to drive. And if you've ever been on a road trip with that many kids, you just drive and drive some more. And uh, what the kids' normal experience of the road trip then is mostly just waiting, isn't it? You know, they're waiting for uh, the next state boundary sign to arrive. They're, they're waiting for their relative's house to burst over the scene. They're waiting for the next mountain peak to show up on the horizon. If you're a careful reader of God's Word, if you're a careful student of the Psalms, you know that the Christian life, how true it is, is often not much more than waiting You wait for God's power to save. You wait for God's compassion to heal. You wait for God's wisdom to guide. The Christians are those who wait contentedly. They wait consistently. They don't wait angrily. They don't wait frustratedly. They don't wait bitterly. They wait, you see, as verse 7 continues, on the Lord. Because for David, it's not so much about what he's waiting for, but on whom he waits. For he says simply, my hope is in you. You might be in here this morning and you wouldn't say that, that you're following the Lord Jesus Christ. And suffering will likewise strike your life. Hardship will come. Affliction might arrive. Is there anyone on whom you can wait to deliver you from that pain? Uh, the truth of God's word is that no, there isn't anyone else in your life who can deliver you other than the Lord himself. So really the question that we're meant to ask in light of David's question in verse 7 is why is he waiting on the Lord? Why is it only the Lord that is the answer to his present problem? Well, that gets us to our fourth and final lesson from these meditations. You want to suffer prayerfully. You see what he says in verse 8 through 11. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. And when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, 
You consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. And so he's giving us, isn't he, right here in verse 8 through 11. He's, He's revealing the cause, much like Psalm 38. What's the cause of his suffering? David says it's his own sin. Uh, What's the cure to that problem? Well, God forgiving him of his sin. He's praying out to the Lord for nothing more than the forgiveness of his sin, that the strokes of God's chastisement might be taken away from him. So you'll see verse 12 as it begins. He says, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Uh, Cry in Psalms, it's of course a a word of of prayer, it's a word of intensity, it's a word uh, of urgency, it's a shout unto the Lord for only something he can do. I I wonder if you've cried out to the Lord lately. For what have you cried out to the Lord lately? Or perhaps days, perhaps even weeks. Dare we say for some of you in the room, months have passed and you've not cried out once. To the Lord. Suffering under God's hand of providence, it means suffering quietly, suffering knowingly, hopefully, and prayerfully. So, all I want to do as we begin to close is give you two more simple meditations, lessons from David's soul in suffering. Uh, Two summary ones, if you will, that I trust we're meant to learn today. The first of which is God loves his children enough to discipline them. God loves his children enough to discipline them. From the earliest age when all of our children could speak the word daddy, they learned what I've historically called the Stone Family Catechism, which is really nothing more than daddy's catechism. It's a catechism that has one question and it demands one answer. It's something you can teach to even the youngest child because it simply asks this, who loves you? And the answer is daddy. And no doubt, all of our kids could tell you that random points throughout the week, random places where they sit, random places where they stand, I'll look out over them, I'll lean into the ear and say, who loves you? Daddy. And I trust you parents would understand that so often, one of the most potent times when you ask that question and make them answer it is in times of discipline. Who loves you? Daddy. Now notice what David underscores for us in verse 8 through 11. He knows God has done something to him that's brought him pain. You see what he says, if I can emphasize the text for you. He says, deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. You, God, have brought the suffering in my life. Do you have a theology of God that says he's sovereign over suffering and he can even decree distress and difficulty in discipline of his people? It's so bad even for David, you'll notice the end of the text, it's as though he's saying he's alienated from God. He's a sojourner, he says, with God, like a guest, like all my fathers, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Now I would just 
commend you to your pastors and elders today to think about how exactly it is that this might work itself out in your own life, that God loves his children enough to discipline them. But all I would offer unto you this morning, in addition to commending you to them, is to recognize that for Christians today, there are two simple errors that you can fall into on this point of God loving his children enough to discipline them. The first of which is, all suffering is the result of a specific sin. Isn't it true that uh, Jesus Christ said that's not the case? In John chapter 9, when his disciples came to him, they observed this man born blind. They said, Jesus, who's sinned? That this man was born blind. And Jesus said, no one. It's simply because God's glory is meant to be displayed in what you're getting ready to observe. My might and my power. But the opposite end of the spectrum is the error. It's not that all suffering is the result of God's discipline of sin, but that no suffering is the result of God's discipline of sin. Now, sometimes, even if you almost want to say to David the king after God's own heart, he needs a healthy dose of New Testament theology that says, David, you feel alienated from God, and doesn't the author to the Hebrews tell us in Hebrews chapter 12, the proof of God's love that you are his child is that he's disciplining you. Maybe the sin that has brought his discipline is something that has only caused chastisement for you to realize how fleeting your life is. That you might get a heart of wisdom and you wouldn't get it without the discipline. I consider the ways that God might even be disciplining you because he loves you. The second and last concluding remark is not only does God love his children enough to discipline them, is that he loves his children enough to deliver them through Jesus Christ. Because you see, at the heart, if you remember back to the beginning, these two parts of the psalm, it has this kind of summary, climactic shout for deliverance. Glance down again at verse 8. Deliver me from all my transgressions. He says, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. As so often happens, isn't it true that uh, someone who's crying in earnestness, intensity and urgency, tears begin to flow. What Charles Spurgeon called these, these irresistible weapons of weakness. Some of you parents know how difficult it is to resist the tears of a child. Even another commentator simply said, David's prayer swells into crying, and that crying melts into tears, which go straight to the great father's heart, weeping Eyes are never turned to heaven in vain. Have you ever prayerfully and tearfully cried out to the Lord? That's what David's doing here. God loves his children enough to deliver them through Jesus Christ. God loves his children enough to deliver them from the discipline their sin deserves. And do you know how Jesus Christ delivers us from that discipline that our sin deserves. It's because he prayed with tears, did he not, in a garden called Gethsemane. Lord, let this cup of discipline pass from me. And yet the Lord did not listen to those tear-filled prayers, did he? Well, he listened, but he said, no, you must take the cup of the discipline that sinners deserve. Because long ago it was prophesied that he would be pierced for our transgressions. 
He would be crushed for our iniquities. Does not Isaiah 53 says, it was upon the suffering servant, the true and better David, that God's discipline of sin fell, that we might receive the peace for which David prays here. So I trust for all of you in here today, that is the simple and central lesson that you must learn from these meditations of a soul in suffering. That David's greater son, the perfect soul who suffered, he can deliver you from the discipline your sin deserves. Because he suffered quietly. He suffered knowingly, hopefully and prayerfully. May you look to the Lord Jesus this day. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you are a God who loves us in sovereign ways, in surprising ways. And we ask that you would even help us this day to have a heart of wisdom that we might number our days, we might know how fleeting is our end. And even that awareness draws us closer to you And knowing that your son, Jesus Christ, has come to deliver us from that very discipline that our sin indeed deserves. And we pray all of these things in his precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.